this is the Branches Podcast. We try to keep it simple in this family of faith. Love God and love people. Let's not make it harder than Jesus intended. If you'd like to know more about our community of faith, you can visit us at branchesoc.com. Good morning. I have a habit. Um, I have more confidence in my writing than my speaking, so I, sen- I tend to write everything out. So forgive me if I check my notes often. Um, I just don't trust myself to communicate on the spur of the moment what I want to. Um, <clears throat> so this morning we've been, we've been following um, Sermon on the Mount, and so this section came to me, uh, beginning of chapter 6, and um, we're going to read actually several verses just because the context sort of demands that we do. Um, uh, but I won't cover all of it. We'll just touch on um, some of the broader themes and then dig down deeper kind of on the... This passage includes the Lord's Prayer, so we'll do a little deeper dive on the Lord's Prayer. So let me just read, read it through for contextual purposes here. This is obviously words of Jesus. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not... Be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And finally, the last part of this text context. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, as I said, I read all 18 verses because it kind of gives the context uh, in which Jesus is speaking. And um, so we'll just highlight the theme of religious hypocrisy in particular as it relates to spiritual disciplines, and then do a little bit of a deeper dive on the Lord's Prayer. Now, 
uh, it's never fun to discuss the topic of hypocrisy <laughs> um, because it obliges one to do a personal assessment, which always leads to the same conclusion. I'm a hypocrite. And I always, I always will be to some degree or other as long as I exist in this human body. Whatever measure we use, there are many measures, right? Sins of commission, the things that we shouldn't do. Um, sins of omission, the things that we should do. Uh, or simply the calling of being more like Jesus. I fail in every category. Oh, my heart wants to follow Jesus, but in reality, he's a good country mile down the road. Um, a hypocrite, by definition, is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. The second meaning, a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. Obviously, hypocrisy is not just related to religion. Hypocrisy can be across the board. It's meaning not being congruent with our, um, with our beliefs, uh, our values, our feelings. So why is it such a struggle to live out our beliefs and our values? The Apostle Paul, who was certainly someone that we would commend, <laughs> looking at all that he accomplished in his life and his service, but he himself uh, spoke starkly about this, uh, about his own struggles. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He would also describe it as, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with this in our personal lives. Um, but in this particular context, Jesus is focusing on, on hypocrisy as it relates to religious practices. Uh, in this case, uh, the examples he gave were charity, prayer, and fasting. He's underscoring that these practices in and of themselves are good things. Uh, what's in question is how, how we practice those things. <clears throat> So, um, in Jesus' time, really, a lot of this, anytime he talked about this, he was really often speaking to religious people and particular religious leaders. So, it kind of begs the question, what is it about the context of religion that makes us so vulnerable to hypocrisy? So, I want you, before I go further in this, I want us to get in small groups and kind of, you know, toss that around a little bit. What do, what do you think it is about the religious context that makes us vulnerable to hypocrisy. So just take a few minutes, get in small groups of three or four, and kind of toss that around. I'm sure each, each, one, of, each one of the groups could preach a sermon on it, because I'm, I'm sure uh, you came up, but I'll touch on a few points that I'm guessing may have come up within your conversations. But um, as I've said before, uh, regarding religion, um, religion itself is just a vehicle. Uh, it can be used for good or evil. It can nourish uh, our spirituality or quench it. It can either draw us closer to God or push us farther away. Um, we were just having a little discussion even about the notion of Buddhism. Buddhism we think of as uh, a non-threatening, peaceful, compassionate kind of expression. And yet, uh, in a part of the world right now, it's, there's a term militant Buddhism where uh, you know, the government has taken over Buddhism as a vehicle to oppress people. We've seen that with Christianity, if we're honest about it, within, in history. 
how it's been a vehicle at times actually for evil rather than good. So the religion, religion itself is simply a vehicle. Uh, the key variables are uh, those of us who practice it, especially those in leadership. There are, so, there are some inherent pitfalls that can expose our human weaknesses. For example, pride. Uh, we can become prideful in our religious observance. Look at me, I'm charitable. Look at me, I pray more. Uh, look at me, I'm so knowledgeable. I'm so virtuous, etc., etc. Another pitfall is the need to justify. So that's, that's kind of how we're seen amongst our others. But then the other temptation is uh, when we think of God, um, we have sometimes this need to justify ourselves before God, uh, to earn brownie points, to somehow participate in our own salvation. Another unfortunate tendency is to judge others through religious practice, that kind of holier-than-thou attitude. Um, I'm better than you and God loves me more. Um, which can be so offensive and such a misrepresentation of the gospel. Jesus exposes these pitfalls and clarifies that any religious endeavor must start with humility. I'm just going to look at another text if we can put up, um, um, because Jesus was confronting these kind of things in his ministry. Um, This is found in Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some of those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Of course, tax collectors kind of looked upon as the, the scum of the earth in that time. Um, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the message here is simple. Better to humble ourselves before God rather than to be humbled. We see uh, the religious pride here, the temptation to justify oneself, to present oneself as righteous and better than others uh, when we're really just playing the hypocrite. Only God can save so better for me to recognize and acknowledge in humility my status of being unworthy and that I need divine grace. And I make a clarification here. Unworthy does not mean to be of no value. We are of great value to God. Why else would he go to such lengths to try to reconcile with us? To be unworthy is simply to be human. In a nutshell, I'm not divine. And only an act of God can save me. In that way, Jesus challenges listeners not to fall prey to this kind of religious spirit uh, of pride, trying to be seen by others and praised for their deeds, or trying to justify themselves before God with their so-called righteousness. God prefers us to practice our faith in humility before an audience of one. When you give, do in secret. When you pray, do it in secret. 
when you fast. Do it in secret. God will observe you, your humility and will reward you. Hypocrisy, of course, is not just a personal struggle. The Jewish leaders struggled with it in the time of Jesus, and Christianity as a whole has fallen into some of the same patterns throughout history. It's unfortunate because religious hypocrisy really is one of the most common stumbling blocks for people uh, who have turned away from God or religion. Um, so walking in spiritual humility is not just for our benefit, but it's the kind of authenticity that the outside world is looking for and will be drawn to. It's why Jesus himself is held still in high esteem in many cultures and religions, even when Christi the religion of Christianity has failed, because they see the humility and the spirituality of Jesus. They don't see the religious spirit of Jesus. So let's look more specifically at the subject of prayer. Jesus warns in the same way about prideful religious prayer, trying to be seen by others. Uh, certainly there are times for public prayer, uh, but God is calling us to commune with him in secret and in simplicity, not with many words as if to try to uh, flatter or impress or convince God. God is already aware of our needs. So Jesus dials it down with this seemingly simple prayer, but it's actually packed with a lot of meaning. It's really uh, like an outline. Unfortunately, in many circles, it has been reduced to uh, routine repetition. Certainly, the famili familiarity with it is comforting. Uh, I, in my hospice practice, I often say this prayer with my patients at bedside or at a funeral, uh, because simply that familiarity with the prayer is very comforting. Um, but it's good to take a deeper look at the, at the principles uh, underlying the prayer. Let's begin with the, the very first phrase, our Father. This would be really radical in the context of Jesus, because the Old Testament uh, saw a God that was holy and distant. Only the priest could go in there with a rope tied around their leg, you know, uh, if they needed to drag him out, uh, to make those kind of sacrifices. Now, it's the same loving God, but you're dealing with, the, as we know in the New Testament, but you're dealing with this context of a holy God and a fallen world, which had to be rectified, if we're talking theologically. So Jesus suddenly is introducing this kind of language like, no, it's not some distant God. It's, it's not even just my Father. It's our Father. Our Father... Uh, suggests, it says inclusion, it says family, it says accessibility. Indeed, that was a mission of Jesus to reconcile us all unto God, that we understand that we are children of God and can walk into the throne room uh, with confidence to receive uh, his grace in our time of need. Then it's followed by who art in heaven, uh, just, I would just suggest there that God may be our Father, but He is Spirit. He transcends the universe and all creation, but He is not of this world. So we shouldn't pray to a statue or an animal or a symbol or anything that could take on the form of an idol. God is Spirit, and we are called to commune with Him in Spirit. Hallowed be thy name. 
that suggests the notion of worship. Yes, we are God's children, we are family, but God is still God, and we must recognize him as such. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, again, fear is not what we might think of like in fear-mongering. No, fear in this sense is meaning recognition and respect, um, a bowing down to his divinity. That's why we typically start a service, as we did today, uh, with worship. It's that important establishing of bowing our hearts before God, establishing that place of humility before him, because we know when we're in place of humility, then we're in a place to receive from God. If we're pumping ourselves up, we're leaving little space for us to receive from God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this was a tough one to discuss because we could spend many sermons on the notion of the kingdom of God. Um, But really, here's where we get to the purpose of our existence on earth. It's to facilitate God's kingdom and God's will. A kingdom is a territory in which a king reigns. Jesus often emphasized in his ministry the kingdom of God is at hand. Theologically speaking, uh, the world was fallen and under the reign of darkness or evil. Uh, But with the incarnation of Jesus, uh, meaning God in human form, uh, the kingdom of God was now present on earth. And it became established through the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this kingdom continues to expand through the Holy Spirit that abides in each one of us. So we live in a world where both kingdoms are in play. We have this kingdom of darkness that has reigned. But when Jesus came and accomplished his ministry, we now have the kingdom of God on earth, not just in heaven. But we live now in this period of time where both kingdoms are at work. we can encounter both good and evil. So we are encouraged to pray and act on behalf of the kingdom of God uh, to help it spread, as it were, and gain greater influence because God's kingdom and his will or desire for us is what is best for all creation. Now, again, how do we interpret the best way to spread the kingdom of God? Um, This is up for debate. I myself suggest that it's not from the top down, but to spread the kingdom of God is from the bottom up. Uh, It must begin with spiritual action. Jesus here is addressing prayer. Pray for God's kingdom and his will to come. So there's a spiritual endeavor going on that we pray. Prayer then should lead us to social action that we love our neighbor, that we seek to do justice and give mercy. And in my thinking, this change at the bottom is what bring, will eventually bring good change at the top. I'm all for changing laws that harm people that are not just. I'm all for making new laws that you know, establish justice. But, I mean, when we look at Jesus' life, Uh, He could have stepped in and taken out Nero. He could have taken out Caesar and say, there's a new government now, and we're going to do this, this, and this. No, he he moved spiritually. And because of his spiritual presence, his kingdomness, 
he impacted all those people around him. And, 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 and look at the impact that those disciples had. They didn't seek any place of power, political power, or any other form of power. That power came from the bottom up to change society. And it's what we might call the upside-down kingdom. You know, we have an idea of kingdoms, and we think kingdoms have to be from the top down. No. God's kingdom starts from the bottom up to bring change. Um, it would be to everyone's best interest, of course, that God's kingdom was fully expressed in this world. Remember the definition that God is love. That is a driving force behind his will. That is the greatest expression of his kingdom. The promise, then, is when Christ returns, the kingdom of darkness at that point will be eliminated, and there will be only God's kingdom in play at that point forevermore. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice the emphasis on daily. Why? Because God desires daily dependence upon him. It's why I've had the good fortune of living in different places in the world, and, and you see when you're uh, living uh, in a place where there may be some poverty, destitution, people just trying to survive, you see the, the faith that is there. It's a daily faith. It's a daily uh, dependence on God. They know they need God for survival. We're blessed to be in a place where a lot of times we don't think in those terms. We don't have a survival mentality. And so it's easy to kind of compartmentalize God, and I'll get to God when I need him. Um, uh, God's desire is relationship. He wants to be reconciled and not just, not just theologically reconciled. That's all good. No, he wants relationship. And so there's this notion of us asking for daily uh, asking for um, our daily bread, not that we check in once a week or once a month. And the notion of bread also suggests the idea of God providing what we need, that our focus should be on our needs, not our wants or our desires. doesn't mean that we quench those dreams that are in our heart. But um, um, sorry to say, Jesus really isn't into prosperity doctrine, um, he blesses us. We should be grateful for, for the things that we have in our life, and, you know, pleasures and so forth. Um, but in this prayer, there is no notion of extravagance. Uh, it's about asking for and being content with our daily bread. The next says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Obviously, this is a core theme of the gospel. Our very relationship with God hinges on our forgiveness, the redemption of a fallen world. And Jesus reminds us, and will insist again at the end of this passage, uh, the importance to share that forgiveness with others, even suggesting that we can somehow interrupt that flow of forgiveness to us if we hold back on forgiving others. Um, I meant to include it in my notes, but um, I want to read uh, a, a quick passage here from Father Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest. He says this about forgiveness. Among the most powerful of human experiences is to give or to receive forgiveness. I am told that two-thirds of the teaching of Jesus 
is directly or indirectly about this mystery of forgiveness. God's breaking of God's own rules. That's not surprising because forgiveness is probably the only human action that reveals three goodnesses simultaneously. When we forgive, we choose the goodness of the other over their faults. We experience God's goodness flowing through ourselves. And we also experience our own goodness in a way that surprises us. That is an awesome coming together of power, both human and divine. Eventually, I believe we will all forgive one another because we have been forgiven. But let's do it now and not wait until later. Let's ask for the grace to let go of those grudges and hurts to which we cling. How else will we ever be free? So that kind of underscores the, this importance of forgiveness and how central it is really to our faith. Finally, the last portion, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here is a recognition of the world that we continue to live in. We still have our human nature and are always prone to temptation and to sin. Hence the previous discussion on hypocrisy. We're always dealing with hypocrisy. And we still contend with the kingdom of darkness that is always looking to harm us and enslave us. Pope Francis was going to initiate a slight change in the Lord's Prayer, arguing that it may not be the best translation of the text. He was highlighting this notion of lead us, lead us not into temptation because nothing should ever infer in any way that God would tempt us or lead us into temptation. Other scriptures would confirm that. Temptation comes from our fallen human nature and from evil itself, not from God. We can never blame God for our own sins. Rather, it's important that we are diligent and pray for God's help in this regard and use our own wisdom to steer clear of situations and people where we know there will be temptation. And of course, the obvious, praying for discernment and authority for when we might encounter evil and how to confront it and overcome it. So let me just conclude in saying, um, let us use this prayer as Jesus intended. Sure, let the familiarity of it bring you comfort, but avoid the religious trap of superstitious repetition. Rather, use it as an outline to go deeper in prayer. Let us rejoice in our status as children of God and the access we have to his love and grace, all the while cultivating an attitude of humility and a posture of worship, meditating on those things that characterize and promote God's kingdom and his will, so that it becomes the focus of our purpose and actions. Let us commune with God daily, asking God to provide according to our needs. And let us take inventory of those things in our lives that need to be confessed and acknowledged to God. You know, in church history, I'm ecumenical. So to me, I, I embrace uh, Catholicism, I embrace Orthodoxy, I embrace uh, Protestantism, I embrace 
Christianity in all of its forms. And I have a very high respect for all religions because I believe there is a lot of truth in different religions. But I hold true to Jesus and the Christian faith. Um, but, um, sorry, I lost my, I know I went off on my thoughts. See, I didn't follow my text. <laughs> Let's see, where was I? Oh, unfortunately, I understand why the Reformation took place. Because the Catholic Church at the time was, had, had merged with the political empire. And to the extent that the essence of Christianity was no longer recognizable in that context. And so there was a reformation, a movement, because of that corruption that had taken place. But unfortunately, in so doing, we threw off a lot of things. We threw out, some, in some ways, the baby with the bathwater and, and Protestantism. Because there is a lot of good things in Catholicism. Uh, it's just at the time it had been hijacked by the empire and was, had become a, a religious vehicle, uh, not necessarily for you know, the things of Jesus, but for, for power. Um, and one of those things we threw off was a notion of confession. So again, we may look at that as, well, that seems pretty religious to go into a booth and talk to a priest. Um, I'm not going to say which is right or wrong or how it's practiced, but the notion of confession is really important and really powerful. And we, you know, a lot of times I think people may come to a church like this and they may be carrying something that they need to confess, but there's no place to do it. And we can, obviously, the best place is before God. We're supposed to do it before God, but a lot of times we really need uh, another person, a trusted person there to confess that. Whether it's, a, whether it's just a, a friend or whether it's someone in a leadership position, it's, it's an important aspect to identify and confess and free us up from those things that we're carrying. Because, again, we all know we're hypocrites. Every week we're going to have things <laughs> that we can confess. Now, we live under this blanket grace of God. It's not like you fall out of God's grace. But there's this importance to be making that a part of our lives, just like prayer or any of these other spiritual disciplines are important. The notion of confession is actually an important uh, discipline to practice. So, Cultivate that. Find a trusted person or two that you, know, you can release some things to and where there can be some accountability and that can be part of this forgiveness process. And obviously in the same way, as we take inventory on, on, on those things that we allow into our lives, that those entrenched places of hypocrisy, the sins that so easily entangle us and keep us from drawing closer to God, in so doing, we must also reflect upon all our relationships and allow God to bring conviction if we are holding a grudge or being reluctant to forgive or to reconcile. Pray that God would empower us to do so. Finally, pray for discernment and wisdom to avoid those circumstances and relationships that would lead us to temptation and sin. And in recognizing that we are in a world where two kingdoms are at war, good and evil, Pray for that armor that is needed to discern and overcome evil when we are confronted by it. Let's close before the worship team comes up again just for a couple more minutes in your groups and just talk about the Lord's Prayer. How does it speak to you? Was it a part of your tradition? Are there any new insights that you have regarding the Lord's Prayer? So we'll do that.
in your groups again for just a couple minutes and then we'll close with worship.